Mike, I want to ask you about what I discovered going back into his back catalog to see a, maybe the smaller movies from the 70s. And I was struck by the fact that he always had roles that had something to do with either machismo or, you know, what it means to be a man in several, you know, situations, whether you're, you know, the spy or whether you're, you know, the John Updike character in Rabbit Run or, you know, these 1970s kind of throwaway movies where it's sort of a thriller. You, you know, you're playing a guy who just got out of jail for, you know, stealing cars and, you know, now you're running into Sally Kellerman, hitchhiking, but you always play this sort of central male view of the times. Hello and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about James Kahn, who unfortunately passed away very recently. And a that means that Mike and I need to talk about his career. Now, Mike, I know you have probably seen a lot more of James Caan movies when they first came out. I'm familiar with the, the greatest hits kind of thing, and I've gone back to fill in, backfill some of his movies, but what an amazing career this man has had. Where do we get our arms around the topic, Mike? Where to start? Well, why don't we start at the beginning, namely the beginning of his life, because his personality, that tough guy personality, is so often the kind of character he would play. Reputedly, he had mobster friends. He certainly had what I call a mobster personality. And so to give a sense of, of how he came along, he died at the age of 82 recently. And the thing about his origins, uh, he grew up in New York City, in Queens specifically, and one of the things that he always used to joke about, and this is like for years, people always assumed, because of The Godfather for sure, but some of the other roles, people always assumed that he was Italian. And he would always kind of laugh at that, like, well, no, I'm not Italian, I'm Jewish. And, and indeed, growing up in, born in the Bronx, growing up in Queens, his father actually was a kosher meat dealer. So, you know, he, he really is, is intensely Jewish, if I can put it that way. I mean, you know, he was kosher in that respect and his mother, the, the homemaker, and so on. And so he really grew up in that kind of traditional Jewish household where he starts to kick in professionally for our purposes and for his. When you look at the, the educational background, you get a sense that he's up be polite and say independent-minded or certainly not a conformist. He started going to college at Michigan State, then he transferred to Hofstra. What's significant for our purposes is that's where he met Francis Ford Coppola. They were classmates at Hofstra, which was on Long Island. But where, where it's so characteristic of James Kahn in terms of his personality, if you will, is that he was a college dropout. He uh, you know, just wasn't going to stick it out that way. But what he dropped into, which was actually rather providential, in 1960, he joined the Neighborhood Playhouse in New York, which really was very strong at that time in terms of where young actors wanted to get their training. So he did a lot of theater work. Marie loves Billy Wilder as a director, and, and she may know that he actually has an unbilled part, almost a cameo, if you will, in Irma La Douce in, in 1963. And so he really is, you know, like a lot of actors of his generation, schooled in the, the New York theater specifically and getting into television and into movies. And we'll talk about it mainly in terms of movies. The film that really, I think, starts to get him a lot of serious attention is El Dorado in 1966, because he's co-starring with, guess who, John Wayne and Robert Mitchum. Here are three tough guys, right? And it's really early in James Caan's career, but you can already sort of see where that tough guy persona is shaping up. 
also dovetailing periodically with Francis Ford Coppola. They would make several movies together. The one at this point in his career would be The Rain People in 1969. He plays a football player there. And so already in terms of the kind of character that he is a football player. And this is really where I'll, I'll very quickly mention what launches him, I think, for the general public. That is in a TV movie called Brian's Song in 1970. I remember when it came out, I watched it first run at that point on TV. And even then, as a youngin myself, I realized it's like shamelessly sentimental, but you couldn't resist it, you know? He was playing the real-life football player, uh, Brian Piccolo, and the other principal football player character, if you will, is Gail Sayers, played by none other than Billy D. Williams. That film got a lot of attention, and indeed, he got an Emmy nomination for it. And so that's really the year, I would say, 69-70, when he breaks through in terms of the general public nationwide, having a sense of who this guy is. And that will lead us up to The Godfather. And at that point, I'm happy to turn it over to you to talk about The Godfather and whatever else. Well, I, I do want to mention that I also saw Brian's song when it was on TV and absolutely loved it. Appreciated all of the shameless sentimentality because, you know, I'm here for that. And also that he had an uncredited role in Lady in a Cage, which I saw much, much later, not realizing it was James Caan. So I feel like he has sort of been around and in things that I've seen and probably with other people where you just never realized he was that actor. He just has always been sort of in the background of, of these things that you saw and liked or appreciated, not realizing that he had a hand in it. Of course, when he gets to The Godfather, that's when everybody remembers him as Sonny Corleone, which I know you probably have a lot to say about that. But when I was looking at his back catalog to see what I had missed, he did a couple of things with Robert Duvall before that which is sort of fascinating to me because they're two powerhouse actors. And of course, you know, The Godfather had to be like the biggest role ever for either of them, but they'd actually worked together before that. And Mike, I know you've seen the movies he did with Robert Duvall before The Godfather. So let me give you a chance to remark upon those two things that led up to, you know, the biggest role for, for both of them. Well, again, thank you for, for that handoff, if you will. This is a group of actors, you know, Robert Duvall, Al Pacino, and so on. They're all coming along at about the same point. And if their careers had ended, then they might have been actors of some recognition. Like Marie, it was like, you know, at the time you see them, it's like, okay, I recognize that guy. Or, but you wouldn't have been talking about them to any great extent. But they're starting to generate some interest that way. And so when Coppola is casting for The Godfather, Who's he thinking about? He's thinking about James Caan. He's thinking about Robert Duvall. He's thinking about all those things. And this becomes, in a way, a sort of like acting troupe, because these are actors who would, you know, work with him and with similar-minded directors in the years ahead. Here's a curious footnote to any discussion of The Godfather. Initially, James Caan was to have played the role of Michael Corleone, the role that went, of course, to Al Pacino. And as that film took shape, they sort of switched off some roles. So you end up with James Caan playing Sonny there. Also, by way of a sort of a, what I call an Oscar footnote here, is that because The Godfather was such an instant classic and, and so much Oscar recognition, ironically, that almost worked against some of the actors involved, names we've been talking about. There were Oscar nominations in terms of supporting actors 
for James Caan as Sonny Corleone. Also, though, nominated in the same category were, guess who? Al Pacino and Robert Duvall. What happened was they sort of canceled each other out. You've got three actors from The Godfather in the same category. Is one of them going to win? No, they're going to sort of cancel out as they did. And the winner, who was, you know, seriously quite deserving, was Joel Gray for Cabaret. So I can't complain about that. This is such a signature role for him that Marie and I should probably dwell on this a bit. Any actor, I think, ultimately would be grateful, thankful to be remembered at all, but to be remembered so well for a single role. And I know it's a mixed blessing because, uh, you know, James Conn would go on to do some other worthwhile films, but immediately, instantly, what do you think? James Conn, Godfather. And he never complained about that. And in fact, he enjoyed, again, that kind of mobster reputation. And, and so, you know, to be in one of the greatest movies ever, who could complain about it? And in that film, there's some you know, famous lines of dialogue we all know. And one of the most famous exchanges actually is between the characters of, of Sonny and Michael. And, and Sonny's sort of talking with Michael about, you know, when you go to bump off guys, how to do this, how to do that. It's, it's sort of like an instructional manual for, for gangsters. And here's one of the things that Sonny tells Michael. You got to get up like this and bada bing, you blow their brains all over your nice Ivy League suit. And that was an expression in particular, the, the, the bada bing, that kind of entered the, the, the general language, if you will, like where do expressions come from? James Conn in later years said he wasn't quite sure where he got that expression. Was it from the street? Was it something he knew growing up? He just sort of threw it in. And he mentioned that even though The Godfather is you know tightly scripted, there was some improvisation. And he mentioned that he actually had been the one who improvised that, that bada bing uh, kind of lingo and just tossed it in. And Coppola, having a very good ear, if it sounds right to the ear, you keep it, right? And so these are actors who are very much in sync, the simpatico quality, where when they got into character, they just started spouting off. And, you know, most of it scripted, but some of it improvised. And when you think about directors like Coppola and Scorsese and so on, they tended to work that way. Yeah, you got a tight script, but you also, you know, you go with your actors. The actors themselves are not shy about saying, what if I try it this way or that? And some of the lines that get into the film are not in the original uh, shooting script. But let me hand it back to you, Marie, to say some more about The Godfather, because it truly is his signature role. It's, it's his greatest role for sure, and one that he'll be always remembered for. Well, I'm glad you brought up the Bada Bing thing, because that ends up, of course, in The Sopranos is the name of the club that Tony Soprano, you know, frequents. And, you know, it actually comes from, from The Godfather, which maybe a lot of people don't know. The interesting thing for me about The Godfather and James Caan in it is that the Sonny character is the juicy one. He gets to be the passionate one. He's the one with the, uh, you know, the dilemma of following along where, you know, the Michael character is, you know, reluctantly being pulled into this world. So James Conn's character is, is sort of more interesting to watch because he's all in. And you watch, uh, you know, his character's trajectory from the standpoint of someone who is, you know, trying to buy into the idea of it as, as opposed to holding back and being reluctantly drawn into it. So I think that makes for a juicier role. And he would say later when he would meet total strangers, they would say things to him like, yeah, you know, don't go through that, the toll booth there. Toll booth. Or, hey, make sure you have exact change on you. So, you know, people having seen The Godfather years later meet the man playing that character and want to sort of advise him of how to not, you know, to change his trajectory as if you could do that in a movie. I think that really tells you how much people invest in a character when after the movie's long since been 
you know, finalized. They're still trying to give him tips to come up with a different ending. What, what do you think about that, Mike? I love your observation because we all tend to identify actors so closely with certain roles that even if intellectually we know, well, he's an actor, he's playing that part, how can you not think he's the guy, right? And so, you know, the fact that members of the public would come up to him on the street and start saying, hey, bada bing, bada bing, you know, it always reminds you of your greatest hit, if you will. And I always, like, on a biographical level, wondered if he was driving on the Jersey Turnpike, which I'm sure in real life he oftentimes was, how did he approach toll booths? I mean, you just see, I mean, it lends itself to all sorts of joking, even as to, you know, how did the actor get through this? Because they also, particularly method actors, right? They really identify with these characters and kind of bring the part home with them. So when you're driving on the Jersey Turnpike, do you have exactly change as you approach the toll booth. But, you know, I love the way members of the public would like, you know, shout advice to the character as if somehow the character might still be alive if only they would follow their advice. I mean, it's like really bizarre to think about it. Like, oh, if only you'd done this or that, you wouldn't have been killed in that scene. It's like, well, what can I do now? I mean, we're we going to re-edit the film? What are we going to do? But again, uh, you know, all joking aside, the sense in which movies are so much interwoven with our lives that, that we really do believe in these characters, the, the actors are the characters in a way. And again, where I earlier said mixed blessing for an actor, yeah, you love being known for one of the greatest movies of all time, but then what do you do next? Where do you go next? That can be a burden for any actor. That's a lot of cultural baggage there. Wouldn't it be nice if people shouted some other lines from other films and not always the bada bing kind of, kind of lines and toll booth jokes and all that, which we immediately do too. But Marie, what's your sense of that? Because I've always, I've always thought it was, a, as I keep saying, a mixed blessing where it just seems like, oh, you're so fortunate to have this great role, but it, it cuts both ways, doesn't it? Yes, because you have to try to think, what am I going to be able to do next where people will think it's as good, if not better, because you don't want to be, you don't want to stagnate in one role, especially since, you know, it came up with two movies that came after it that you wouldn't be in based on what happened to you in the first one. So you do want to have some sort of forward motion with your career. But Mike, I want to ask you about what I discovered going back into his back catalog to see a, maybe the smaller movies from the 70s. And I was struck by the fact that he always had roles that had something to do with either machismo or, you know, what it means to be a man in several, you know, situations, whether you're the spy or whether you're, you know, the John Updike character in Rabbit Run or, you know, these 1970s kind of throwaway movies where it's sort of a thriller. You, you know, you're playing a guy who just got out of jail for, you know, stealing cars. And, you know, now you're running into Sally Kellerman, hitchhiking, but you always play this sort of central male view of the time. What do you think, Mike? Well, what we're calling small movies from the 70s, they're small by comparison with The Godfather. Taken on their own terms and going back to that, that decade, they were big films at the time. They were major releases. Let me just quickly recite some of the film titles. Because of The Godfather, he was a major star all at once, if you will. And so from like 1973 through the end of the decade, here are some of the movies he made. Cinderella Liberty, Freebie and the Bean, Funny Lady, Rollerball, A Bridge Too Far, uh, Comes a Horseman, Chapter Two. Now, again, uh, I'm not saying these are classics. All I'm simply saying is they were major commercial films that did well commercially for the most part and critically as well. So the 1970s actually is his great decade in terms of a working Hollywood actor. 
He does a lot then. And the point where I want to go next with this is, in 1980, he decides he's going to not only star in a film, but direct it. It's the only film he's directed. And that's a film called Hide in Plain Sight. And I remember when I reviewed it at the time, I described it as a mafia-style Kramer versus Kramer. So he's got that tough guy persona working for him here, but he's a relatively sympathetic uh, bad guy, if you will. And there's a quasi-documentary quality to it. The film is shot in Buffalo and looks it. It's very much a post-industrial looking city. In fact, when I went back and looked at my review to to, um, copy from myself, uh, I described Buffalo as a glum city where good weather means rain and bad weather means snow. And when you watch the film, it has that kind of grimy, gritty, realistic quality. Uh, That works in its favor. James Caan, as a character in that film, and and of course also as the director of it, does a pretty good quasi-documentary job with this fictional film. Where the film falls short is it's got choppy continuity and character development. And I wasn't the only one who felt that way. It had mostly mixed reviews, and it was a commercial failure. And he was really, really bothered by that. He was really upset by it. Because after all, he was looking to direct more films, and that just sort of scotched any further directorial, at least from his perspective, that was going to be it. He said he wouldn't direct any more films. And he thought really that the studio, that the producers and editors and so on had sort of taken it from him. And that's a whole story unto itself. But he felt that it wasn't quite the film he would have wanted. But to reprise and also to double back on your observations, because of The Godfather, he had a great commercial run as an actor in the 80s in major films. And then, you know, not surprisingly, gets a chance to direct his own first film. That's his most significant decade, I think, as as a film actor. We can now turn it back over to you, but we can also talk then about how once you get into the 1980s and frankly, from there to the, the near present day, the career becomes more sporadic in terms of output and in terms of quality. And there are all sorts of personal problems and we'll call them issues that should be mentioned. But let me hand it off to you at this point, because at this point, the Godfather would be almost a decade behind him. So what's he going to do after that? The only thing I'll quickly interject is, since we're mentioning The Godfather still, he does work with Coppola again in 1987 in Gardens of Stone. Coppola's very devoted to his favorite actors and, and vice versa. And it's not one of the best Coppola films, but it's, it's an underrated film, I think. I think it, it deserves another look, and I think it's really well acted. And it's certainly one of James Caan's better roles once you get into the 80s and and beyond. But let me turn it back over to you at this point. I'm glad you mentioned Gardens of Stone because I just finished watching it this morning. And it was, you know, coming into the 80s after watching a whole bunch of movies from the 70s. But what I wanted to mention from the movies from the 70s was a movie called Rabbit Run. And the reason I watched it is because I read that when I was in college in the 80s. It's a John Updike story. And the character is not sympathetic at all. And I remember when I read the story thinking, what a terrible character. Why is this iconic? Why is this considered great literature? But watching the movie, I thought, oh, I'm so glad they they chose James Caan because somehow he still makes this really unlikable character watchable. And he sort of reminded me of, he sort of has a Paul Newman-esque kind of role in a lot of his movies without that patrician patina. He's like the more streetwise version of of Paul Newman. And all of the 70s movies have this kind of Mike Post-esque soundtrack. You know, people are smoking, people are hitchhiking. It really like evokes the era, but he fits in it really well. And he does well in all of these roles where he has to play these complex male characters that aren't altogether likable. 
and I just wanted to throw that at you to respond to before we talk about two of his movies that I think after The Godfather, people who hadn't discovered him before then found him in Misery and in Elf. Yeah, thank you for mentioning Paul Newman, because relatively early in James Kahn's career, one of the film critics had actually made the very point you made, that as an actor coming along, that he, gee, he's sort of like Paul Newman in some ways, but without quite the patina that, that Paul Newman would have, and, and not the, you know, good looks, but not great looks, if you will, so, so kind of rougher edge in various ways, and you're right, he brings that to bear in a lot of his roles. I had also read Rabbit Run back in the day. I've read all the Rabbit novels, actually, all the Rabbit Angstrom novels, and to John Updike's credit, first of all, he's a great prose stylist. You know, he writes great sentences, sentence by sentence. As for that protagonist, Rabbit is not always very likable. He's a deeply flawed protagonist, and there's a lot not to like about him. That doesn't mean it makes for a bad book. It means that there's a, a really kind of like, a, you know, clear-eyed vision of a character who is, is, you know, extremely lacking in various ways in terms of how he treats the women in his life, in terms of, you know, his career outlook and all those things. But I don't want to get sidetracked with, with that so much as to just simply second what you're saying. James Conn is very good. And not just in that film, but in films like that. And, and I think that's the kind of character he plays very well. Characters who are really flawed, who are really, you know, bad guys sometimes. And yet, you know, they're at the center of the film. They are the protagonist. I want to then just also double back and, and mention things that you've started to mention that, that, you know, look at the later career. What are the films that really register? He's still off, I think, to a good start as we get into the 1980s. Thief from 1981, the Michael Mann film. He co-stars in that with Tuesday Weld. And he plays a very, I'll call it a sensitive thief. In other words, you could say a bad guy, but a, get, a bad guy with some redeeming qualities. That's a film that I think, you know, certainly goes on the short list of his better films. In terms of the public still being with him, you jump ahead almost a decade, Misery in 1990, where he plays the novelist who is bedeviled by the Kathy Bates character. There are films like that that he's still doing in the 80s into the 90s that do get some recognition. And the final one I'll mention quickly, Elf is certainly worth mentioning, but I would actually, frankly, rather mention Honeymoon in Vegas from 1992. Because in that film, he plays, you know, a mobster. He's playing off of the image we all have of, of James Caan. In Elf, he's playing a, a book editor who's maybe not so nice. But, but, you know, in Honeymoon in Vegas, he goes full mobster, if you will, and shows he still has it. He, he knows how to be a bad guy that way. An almost likable bad guy, if you will. I like the way he's always able to be part of an ensemble cast. Obviously, with The Godfather, there's just so many roles in there that are important. But in Misery, you know, it's a Stephen King story, you know, Kathy Bates, playing off of Kathy Bates. But you never get the sense that he feels like I've come down in the world because I'm doing this, you know, Stephen King thriller or, you know, I'm not going to give it my all because this is just some Christmas movie with, you know, Will Ferrell, you know, chewing up the scenery. He always commits himself 100%. And that's what I remember recognizing in Misery. When I watched it, I thought, wow, this guy is a really good actor. He is committing himself to this role 100%. And he makes the movie. And he said that was the other thing people would come up to him later and ask, you know, hey, are your ankles okay? Because of, the, you know, an unforgettable scene in Misery. But he makes the movie, you know, more than just a paycheck. You know, he really commits to, you feel for him. You feel for him when he is hiding the drugs because he's going to try to drug his captor. And by the way, that doesn't go the way that he thinks it's going to go. But you really feel for him. And after so many roles where he plays somebody unlikable or a mobster, I think that's really an achievement. What do you think, Mike? 
Yeah, I, I do actually. And one thing that I find so encouraging is he still had it. And by that, I mean, he could still do films like that where you realize this is a talented actor. But let me segue from that to some of the things that derailed or nearly derailed the career and helped explain why his later output is less prolific and the quality can, can vary considerably. For one thing, James Caan was married and divorced four times. That's got to take up a lot of your time, right? So he had a, a rather turbulent personal life there. He also had a cocaine addiction for a while and then, you know, eventually went into rehab. He was arrested once for on, on a gun charge. There was another time when somebody plummeted from a, a, an apartment balcony where he was staying and died, and that was sort of mysterious circumstances, the no legal charges. You could go on and on with problems he had in his life that way, that really, you know, that bad guy image doesn't you know, save you in a lot of ways. You're, you're a bad guy in various ways. And he just was, you know, really profligate and kind of bad with his money. He was deeply in debt and just, you know, not organizing the life as well as it could have been. I don't want to sound like I'm passing moral judgment, but just in a professional assessment, it had to affect not only how many movies he made, but the types of films. And he himself actually was very harsh in judging himself here. Later in life, he gave an interview, and here's something he said, quote, I got into the whole lifestyle of girls and drugs and partying. You really do get caught up in it. And it's very destructive, close quote. So Khan himself, even though he kept working right up in, until, you know, recent years, you know, he was not quite the big name he had been back in the 1970s and into the 80s and, and wasn't quite off the radar, but he would just pop up in character roles or, or sometimes in films that were kind of forgettable. And I just think that the career, again, wasn't entirely derailed, but certainly was slowed and, and lacked some of the momentum, let's put it that way, and, and the box office success that he had early on. What do you think? Yeah, I think you're 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 onto something there. And I think one of the tricks of, you know, how to be a beloved actor is, and I think he kind of maybe stumbled across this an elf, is be a character in a Christmas movie that goes viral that everybody has to watch every year after that. Now Elf is of course written around Will Ferrell, who is incredibly zany and just such a huge personality. And you have to have somebody anchor that kind of performance. And I don't think the movie would work without James Caan. You have to have that sort of clear-eyed, you know, understanding of what's going on character that also can register the frustration you have with the character that is somebody like Will Ferrell transplanted into your life. And I think he makes the movie. And I think that was probably a surprise. What do you think, Mike? It definitely was a surprise. When I first heard about a movie called Elf, we're talking about, you know, weeks or months before it came out, you first you start to hear about it. I would not have expected him to pop up in the movie. I'll leave it at that. You know, you know, you have Will Ferrell, people like, yeah, okay, that seems consonant with that kind of children's film. And it's like, James Caan? And yet, you know, seeing is believing in the sense that when I watched Elf, I thought, you know, he's, he's really good in this. And I wish in some ways he'd followed up on it more with some other roles that might have surprised us a bit or types of films we wouldn't expect from him. And that's, again, where I think the, the career had lost enough momentum that he didn't entirely follow through. What are your thoughts on that? Because you think Elf was such a big box office hit and kind of cultural marker. People always wanted to refer to it. Don't you think he probably could have done more to, to play off of that? It didn't, didn't seem like it really panned out entirely. What do you think? Yeah, I see what you're saying, but I, I think that it shows a certain amount of acting humility to let somebody else be the big star, where you, you provide the anchoring that makes the movie work. But having said that, since we are kind of coming to the end of our show, other than The Godfather, Mike, what do you think was his best role? Because I'm going to go with Misery. What do you say? 
I would probably say, I mean, Misery is a, a good film and a, a good showcase for him. So Misery, I could agree with. I would single out Thief. I think Michael Mann's film is well made. It's a role that's tailor made for James Caan. You know, a bad guy, but with some sympathetic traits, if you will. It's, it's a nice kind of chapter in his career where he's established as a bad guy. He knows how to do it. And when he's working with the right director and the right script and all those elements, it comes together well. Thief is just a really satisfying film. But when you mention Misery, that is too. I mean, it's, it's a di very different role he's playing there, but that speaks to the versatility, which I wish he had tapped a bit more often, but he had that capability. So you're right, Marie, him and Elf was for me a pleasant surprise. It was nice to see him in that. And he, he did sort of anchor the film in a way. Yeah, he was the one serious character in a lot of non-serious characters. We'll have to give him that. But that does bring us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to check out our other podcasts at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Spotify and Pandora. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.